Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of War and Words, the podcast by the Conflict Law Center. Today, we are very, very happy to have with us Dr. Marco Longobardo, who is a reader at Westminster Law School and is widely published in the field of public international law, including in the USAD Bellum, international humanitarian law, and international criminal law. He is joining us today to discuss his book, The Use of Armed Force in Occupied Territory, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2018 as part of our Israel-Palestine Symposium. Thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. I'm very happy to be here today with you. So to start off with, and for the benefit of our audience who might not have read the book, uh, could you just briefly explain the key things that you talk about in the book? Yes, with pleasure. The book addresses under different areas of international law, which is the legal framework that applies to the use and force in occupied territory. The problem, uh, uh, the main problems in relation to the analysis of this topic is that there are different sources of international law that uh, are applicable. Sometimes, apparently, they uh, contradict each other. So I wanted the with my book to try to clarify which is uh, um, the legal framework to navigate this maze of different rules. So I have a chapter uh, uh, analyzing whether use at Bellum, the UN Charter basically applies to uh, the use of force in occupied territory. I have a, charter, a chapter on uh, the role of self-determination of the people of people in relation to the right to resistance, and then I have more substantial chapters on the role of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. So more than uh, analyzing each military operation in uh, a certain occupied territory, I try to offer a broader um, reconstruction of the legal framework that in principle can apply to any use of armed force in any occupied territory. Yeah, and I thought it was it was such a great book to read, um, especially given the current situation. There were so many things that you had answered in the book that are currently just so heavily contested right now. Um, and I wanted to start off by asking if you could explain the right to resist an occupation and how that exists, how that can be exercised and by whom, and whether that right inheres in the Palestinian people. This is an, an excellent example to discuss uh, how international law developed in an incoherent way in relation to the use and force in occupied territory, how different uh, legal rules uh, from different branches of international law can clash. Um, in relation to my conclusion, and we start with them, is that international law overall support supports resistance against the occupying power, even if the support doesn't amount to conferring a specific right. And I don't think this is a, there is a, a big difference in our discussion whether right is there or not, but I will try to explain my uh, point. First of all, the main uh, normative layer that we should address is use ad bellum, also known as use contra bellum. And clearly, the state that is occupied has the right to resort to self-defense because occupation is a form of ongoing armed attack. The typical example was Kuwait when it was invaded by Iraq in 1999. 
But uh, this doesn't apply to the specific military operations within the occupied territory that at that point will be uh, already uh, incorporated in that used uh, bellum evaluation of the entirety of uh, the reaction against the occupation. If we move to the local population in occupied territory, that is the trickiest point, we have a really incoherent uh, uh, subject. First of all, the local population doesn't have the right to self-defense. There was debate at the United Nations, in particular, uh, states from the Global South wanted that uh, self-determination could be actionated even by people without reference to a state. But yeah. uh, this wasn't accepted. In fact, uh, it's not self-determination, it's not, sorry, um, uh, self-defense that govern resistance against an occupying power against uh, an apartheid regime, for instance, in South Africa. And this is something that doesn't mean necessarily that you can't persist against the occupying power. It means that you just don't have to do that in light of Article 51 of the UN Charter, so you don't have to demonstrate there was an armed attack and so on and so forth. This is very clear from the preparatory works of the UN Charter that self-defense is only available to states. Having said so, more complex is the situation under other rules of international law. I think the main rule that supports the resistance against the occupying power is the principle of self-determination of peoples. As maybe our audience know, the principle is enshrined in the UN Charter, but it's never defined. However, over the years of the decolonization, the UN General Assembly has adopted some resolutions that can be used to reconstruct customer international law in this field as confirmed by the International Court of Justice. In, in most of these resolutions, I would say all of them, uh, support clearly the res resistance against occupying powers. However, some authors consider this support doesn't encompass uh, the use of force. Uh, I don't think this is correct. Some of these resolutions okay. clarify that armed struggle against the occupying power is legitimate. Mm. More, even more complex is the situation of IHL. I think here we see the entire clash in this field. Because international humanitarian law does not prohibit resistance against the occupying power. And this is a huge achievement in the sense that when IHL was codified more than 100 years ago, before the emergency of the principle of self-determination of peoples, strong states wanted the provision prohibiting resistance in occupied territory because they thought they would have occupied the smaller states in the future. On the yeah. contrary, smaller states, if you think about Belgium in particular, were uh, very much against the idea of prohibiting resistance. So the only um, point uh, of uh, agreement that was found is that uh, resistance in occupied territory is not regulated by IHL. IHL, the law occupation in particular, uh, clarifies that the local population doesn't have a right, sorry, doesn't have a duty to obey the occupying power, doesn't have a duty, but at the same time, the IHL recognizes that the occupying power can protect itself against the resistance. And to a certain extent, the further Geneva Convention clarified that uh, resistance in occupied territory, if it fulfills some uh, uh, criteria, is uh, legitimated in, in the sense that uh, 
participants have the right to prisoners of war. So which is uh, just to be brief on this, uh, international law doesn't prohibit the resistance uh, of the local population. There is a sort of legitimacy, in particular in light of the principles of determination of people, but at the same time, the occupying power as the instruments through criminal legis uh, criminal legislation, uh, judiciary, and the use of force uh, to protect its own interest against the resistance. It's an ins un unsatisfactory answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, is because, yeah. it is because international law was codified also thanks mm -hmm. to the activity of uh, states who were occupied powers so or who were planning to uh, the occupied powers. I think in general we should remember that uh, international law is a, a human construct. It's not something inherently good because uh, given by, I don't know, God. It's just a human yeah. construct, so we can uh, acknowledge the limits. So this is the situation from the local resistance. What about Palestine? Uh, Palestine uh, uh, historically has been recognized as a self-determination unit, what we call the Palestinian territory that comprises West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza Strip. We have so many sources, including the case law of the International Court of Justice, recognizing that the Palestinian people have the right to self-determination. The Palestine Liberation Organization has been recognized as uh, the representative of the Palestinian people. So we can conclude that the acts of use and force performed by uh, Palestinians, in particular under the umbrella of the, of the Palestine Liberation Organization, if they are aimed at ending the occupation, are in principle legitimate. But under international law, not only we have to interrogate the legality of the beginning of the use of force, but also the way in which force is used. So in relation to the 7th October attack by Hamas, there was lots of discussion in particular in um, colleagues from uh, the global south or the uh, or critical uh, theorists about whether the act of Hamas was an act of resistance. The answer is no, because the attacks of Hamas wasn't linked to end the occupation, but was uh, linked to spread terror among Israeli civilians, was linked, uh, caused the indiscriminate attack against uh, civilians. We know the taking of hostages that is prohibited by international law, uh, killing of uh, civilians, and so on and so forth. So it's not only a matter whether the Palestinians have a right to resist, it's a matter what they do with this right. Okay, uh, that's very, very interesting. And I think um, I think the reason why a lot of people in the global south and, and critical theories are so uns like, unsatisfied with international law is because we wish that there were different answers to these questions, but I am essentially a positivist and look at what international law is and not only what it should be. It is interesting, the point, in the sense that I agree. And here we can see how differently different branches of international law evolve differently. Because the law of occupation HL was codified more than 100 years ago, basically in Europe, in, in uh, conferences between European states. And that's quite a old yeah. in the body of law, it's quite conservatory. On the contrary, uh, the principle of self-determination of people through the uh, activity of the UN General Assembly was largely the product of uh, states of new 
dependence uh, after the colonization. So clearly with a totally different attitude. I would like yeah. just to add that it's interesting that some regional conventions on human rights, especially in the Arabic world and the African Charter of Humans and People's, and people's Rights, recognize the right to resist the occupation as a human rights of individuals. But the opposite yeah. is not true. If we look at uh, global instruments like the UN uh, Covenants on uh, Human Rights, they never mention the right of occupation. So we always have to remember that international law is the product of these different attitudes. Uh, and yeah. uh, my question is, uh, what does it change having a right? Uh, or yeah. not? I think at the moment, very little. Okay. Um... I did think it was really interesting the way you um, talk about the right to resist or the right to self-defense and you look at it in tandem with Article 43 of the Hague Regulations and the fact that that wouldn't be there if there was if there was a right to resist. What, what struck me about reading this in the current context was um, where you talk about the legitimization given to resistance to occupied territory in terms of Article 482. Um, and I, I couldn't help but being like, okay, that definition, organized resistance, resistance movement in an occupied territory, does that only not apply to Hamas because it doesn't belong to a party? I uh, will try to unpack your question. Uh, my idea in relation to the use and force by the occupy by the occupying power is that it, this is not governed by use and ballot. We can discuss this why agreeing this with the International Court of Justice. My idea is that in occupied territory, the law occupation governs when use and force is possible. This is something weird because usually HL only governs the way in which force can be used. But we have to remember that the Hague regulations were codified before the UN Charter. And Article 43 of the Hague regulations gives the European power the responsibility of restoring sure public order and civil life. Yeah. So I could build upon this to say that force should be primary used to uh, restore and sure public order. We could think that Article Article 43 is old-fashioned. Article 43 doesn't mention the uh, security of the occupying power, but if we look at post-World War II case law, it's clear that the occupying power could protect itself. But let's assume that uh, Article 43 of the regulations is old-fashioned. The problem is that the security of the occupying power is explicitly mentioned by the Fourth Geneva Convention. Article 64, paragraph 2 says, that the occupying power can alter the law in force in occupied territory in A, B, C. There are certain cases, including to protect yeah. its own. So it's not something just 110 years old. It's something that was confirmed after the entry in force of uh, uh, the UN Charter, just to, yeah. to be clear. Then um, the question on uh, the status of prisoner of war is uh, interesting, but I think it's uh, also misleading in the sense there is a, a huge perception among scholars uh, that occupation and hostilities are two binary uh, situations. If there is hostility, there is no occupation because occupation is defined as exercise of authority 
authority or already hostile territory. So it is very often said that occupation means control, a further control of the territory. There are no hostilities in the territory. This is, for instance, the position of uh, one of the most uh, prominent uh, international Italian law scholars, Professor Sassoli. However, I tried to find in uh, the in international Italian law some references to hostilities within occupied territory. They are not many. Usually there are references to military operations, so we can discuss whether military operations and hostilities are the same. But for sure, there is a reference to uh, resistance in occupied territory in the criteria for uh, the prisoners of war status. This means that uh, the drafters of the Fourth Geneva Convention believed that you could have uh, a resistance in occupied territory, so hostilities in occupied territory, without having, um, without this uh, putting to an end, uh, putting the occupation to an end. Having said so, does Hamas uh, uh, fit that uh, definition of Article 4? I don't think so. I don't think so because it's clear that the definition of legitimate combatant should recomprise uh, between the Article 4 of the First Geneva Convention and Additional Protocol 1 uh, uh, conducting actions in line with international maternity. And this, for sure, it's something that Hamas hasn't done. Mm. And uh, in any case, again, which would be the difference? The difference would be that uh, Hamas combatants, if captured, would be entitled to the status of prisoners of war rather than being uh, a subject to punishment under uh, domestic law of the occupied power. Just this is uh, the main difference. At the moment, from what I understand, there is not much emphasis on capturing the enemy. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that uh, there is more emphasis on killing them, destroying them. But uh, irrespective of this, uh, uh, I don't think that all the cumulative criteria uh, of uh, Article 4 and Article 1 are respected, in particular in relation to uh, conducting operations in line with uh, IHL. The other question that you put it, and it's very sophisticated, is whether in any case a mass belongs to a party of the conflict. And so the question would be, which is the party of the conflict? Uh, according to Israel, the conflict is between Israel and Hamas. But if this was the situation, oh, sorry, I lost, uh, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> Second, I feel Okay. In my office, the light goes up. Right? If yeah. this was the situation, was saying if the conflict is between Israel and Hamas with no link to the occupation, I don't think that it would be tenable to consider it an international conflict. In any way, in 2014, Hamas concluded an agreement with Fatah, that is mm. the main party in the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas. In any case, has always been has always maintained the links with the Palestine Liberation Organization, that is the international voice of Palestine. So I don't think that it is absolute to say that Hamas belongs to Palestine until, at least until Abu Mazen doesn't clarify that uh, the Palestine Authority has no control over Hamas. I think there was not. It doesn't, 
but I don't think this is the position of Palestine, uh, the Palestinian okay. party. So it's very yeah. complex uh, the uh, scenario. It's uh, the consequence of the fragmentation of Palestinian leadership. That is also the consequence of the physical uh, separation between different areas of the Palestinian territory. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. I learned about that agreement between Hamas and Fatah from your book. Um, so that was really interesting for me to to learn. I I wonder whether my counter to that might be that um, it does for me it does hinge on the belonging aspect. Um, but also I think I think it puts the Palestinians in a difficult position. I mean I'm not arguing for Hamas to get POW status. I don't. In terms of resistance movements, I agree with you in the sense that um, could it be a legitimate resistance movement? I think the first phase of their when they targeted the IDF, yes, but when they started targeting civilians, no. Um, but in terms of um, ab- abiding by those cumulative conditions and one of them being the laws of war, um, is that does that come down to it being individually met or? met as a group because then you have article five which means that if you haven't met that you face a tribunal so if you're never going to get pow status because as the group you don't then what would the point be of having individual tribunals um but i I think that's why there's um this conflict is so interesting because all of these legal issues are are teased out of it i believe that the uh, status of individuals concerned including uh, for the uh, purposes of the status of prisoners of war is always individual as such. Right. At the same time, uh, in uh, the status should be uh, assessed when the individual is captured. And so, mm. and this is a clear, it's logical because it's a status protecting the people who are detained. It's not relevant for the law targeting that whether the Hamas fighters comply with the, the uh, definition of combatants or not. If they are not complying with the requirements for prisoners of war, they will be in any case fighters. They will be civilians taking part in the hostilities and they could be targeted as such. Then this uh, demonstrates another of the limits of IHL because uh, it's Quite uh, states are quite uncomfortable to consider members of a mass as civilians where they don't perform uh, uh, attacks, uh, and uh, this is understandable. Just because they do, it will be there is a sort of uh, concern of uh, giving more protection to groups uh, uh, or to individuals who fight not following the rules uh, rather than uh, those who follow the rules because those who follow the rules can be always killed. They are combatants, they can always kill if they follow the rules of HL, they have a them, they carry arms open, open, blah, blah, blah. Whereas those who do not do this, they would be civilians unless they are uh, taking active part in the city. So you may know uh, the ICRC came up with this idea of uh, combat, uh, a continuous combat function for yeah. this kind of phenomenon. But uh, honestly, this would be uh, primarily relevant if they fulfill the status of prisoners of war or not, if they are captured. From my perspective, it's important that there is this provision 
in the law occupation because it recognizes that at certain conditions, okay, but at certain conditions, the resistance is um, legitimate. Mm -hmm. We have to pay attention in this discourse because, again, the UN General Assembly recognized the PLO as the legitimate representative of the Palestinians. And even if Hamas is a component of the PLO, the PLO, with the signature of the Declaration of Principles, renounced the term of struggle against Israel. Yeah. The question is, yeah. does this mean that any armed struggle against Israel doesn't have the permission by the PLO? If this is the conclusion, there is no way to even enter any discussion of the legitimacy uh, of the resistance by us. Yeah. On the contrary, if the PLO backs this, we could say, in principle, Hamas as any other Palestinian group can act in resistance, but in practice, these acts of resistance are illegal, they are criminal because of how they perform. But I don't think the PLO is actively backing them. Yeah, there is a huge problem, as I'm sure you are aware. It's not a legal problem of the legitimacy of the Palestinian authority, of the fact that uh, yeah. there is a very old leadership with extremely little uh, legitimacy through elections. There were elections in 2006 and they were not uh, repeated. And uh, this is a political problem that creates uh, that mud creates more uh, doubts in the legal landscape. Yeah, yeah, and it's a terrible uh, situation for the Palestinians to be in that the PA is so corrupt and viewed as just a contractor of the Israeli state in or, in order to conduct a burden-free occupation. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a huge problem, but it's the voice of Palestine internationally. And mm -hmm. it's uh, the Palestine, uh, the, through the PLO, that is now called the State of Palestine at the UN, through the PLO that uh, uh, Palestine is uh, suing the US uh, before the International Court of Justice for the relocation of the embassy. Okay, it's mm -hmm. pending, even if it's quite a dormant. It's through the PLO, called the State of Palestine, that Palestine ratified the statute of the International Criminal Court and giving the International Criminal Court the possibility to have jurisdiction of the facts. So, you know, the problem with these uh, uh, situations and the tragedy is that if you follow a certain uh, legal reasoning, like the PLO is the representative of Palestinian people, then you have to conclude that, that Palestinians who fight without the support of the PLO are not fighting a legitimate act of resistance. I'm, I don't have a personal position. I don't think it's a, a problem of personal position. I think it's a problem of the limits of international law that always uh, uh, looks at a, a sort of organization to represent a people. Usually it's the state, the government of the state. Um, Other times it's a movement of national liberation like the PLO or Palestine. If today Palestine became a state, that is a question, as you know. But uh, something uh, totally rogue, like Hamas, who is, doesn't listen to uh, um, the PLO, doesn't listen to Abu Mazen, difficult, it's very difficult that could uh, receive any amount of legitimacy in international law.
irrespective of the fact that that uh, how Hamas behaves, they think that uh, the recent acts are just last episodes of a long series of criminal acts. But irrespective of this, Hamas is considered wrong within the Palestinian leadership because they do not follow the Palestinian leadership. Right. At the moment, the only voice uh, internationally recognized for Palestinians is in Ramallah. Mm-hmm. Having said so, how this helps uh, local population, I don't know. The problem is that the local population are only caught in this web of interest, of rules that uh, probably leave them with a little protection, I understand. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at it from a historical perspective as well, because it seems that international already really recognizes resistance movements once they win and become a state. So Bangladesh was very easily accepted because. Pakistan had infringed upon their right to self-determination when they emerged on the uh, on the on the field. And similarly with the FLN's tactics, once you win and overthrow your colonial power, um, you're you're treated differently historically, but as well as legally. And per- perhaps the only resistance movement I can think of is the Polisario Front, which received a degree of recognition. Um but but yeah, I mean, that's I, mean, I think this is uh, an interesting consideration. For some reasons, I think it's correct. For others, I think it's not. In the sense that uh, uh, all the international textbooks, I think correctly, consider that that uh, secessions uh, outside of occupied territories, secessions, yeah. are not permitted. Neither prohibited by intervention. They are facts. If the secession consolidates, in fact, like it happened with probably with Kosovo, we would say, the the new entity is a state. If the secession does not consolidate, in fact, like Catalonia, we tried to have the referendum uh, around 10 years ago, less six, seven years ago, I don't remember, in Spain. Then there is no problem of asking was legal or not. It is just uh, something that doesn't exist anymore. With, uh, however, this is the rule for secession. International moved towards recognizing uh, legitimacy to free armed struggles that mm-hmm. can lead to secession or can lead just to fight for self determination. These three situations are fight against colonialism. Yeah. Fight against occupation and fight against apartheid. So mm-hmm. the General Assembly conferred the legitimacy to certain movements fighting against the colonialism, to certain movements fighting against apartheid, like the ANC, to certain movements fighting against occupation, like PLO, but like the Frente Polisario, like the Zwapo in Namibia. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So I think the position is more supported. Whereas if uh, tomorrow I'm Sicilian, if tomorrow I organize a rebellion of Sicily to leave Italy, I will not have from the beginning any legitimacy. Maybe if I manage to defeat the Italian uh, troops and uh, um, create an independent state, maybe at the end that will be a state. But that's a mere fact for international law. The difference is the possibility to... Uh, have an international voice for a people under occupation, under colonization, colonialism, or under apartheid. In fact, Palestine has always had a voice before as PLO 
then as a, a past state of Palestine at the UN, in the General Assembly in particular, like for Frente Polisario, like SWAP, or like the ANC, they were recognized as a movement. Right, yeah. yeah, and so what do you think about the, in terms of looking at it, and, and I'll, I'll ask you in a little bit about the classification of the conflict, because I think that that's also very contested um, in this current situation. But in terms of Israel's right to self-defense mm. in a land that it occupies, um, do you think that that Yusad Balem notion applies here as well? I think that there is lots of confusion these days on this topic, in the sense that there are certain voices who claim that the use of Bellum, in particular the right to self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, does not apply. Mm -hmm. I agree. Now I will explain why I agree. But this doesn't mean that Israel is left without the possibility to protect its own citizens in occupied territory, especially outside, as it happened with the 7th of October attack that was in Israeli territory. As I said, the IHL provides for the possibility of the occupying power to protect itself. But why I think it's a very uh, peculiar debate, because Western states are very, very consistent in saying that Israel can invoke Article 51 of the UN Charter in self-defense. Whereas Israel confirmed as official legal position for this escalation that Article 51 doesn't Okay. Israel does not apply Article 51. The legal justification of Israel is that Israel is involved in an ongoing conflict with Hamas. Yusad Bellum only applies at the beginning of an mm -hmm. armed conflict, so there is no need to invoke Yusad Bellum for this new escalation. Now, this is something Israel is quite consistent in relation to, for instance, the attacks against uh, uh, Hezbollah bases in Lebanon, against Syrian uh, objectives. I think this is, uh, in general, a wrong justification, but is a justification that applies to the specific circumstances of occupied territories. So Israel, Israel considers that uh, Article 51 does not apply, but considers mm -hmm. that Gaza is no longer uh, under occupation. I believe that the Gaza Strip is still under occupation, and because of this, Article 51 does not apply. But irrespective of this uh, disagreement of the uh, uh, characterization of Gaza Strip uh, that we can discuss, uh, it's interesting that the Western states are so uh, focused on Article 51 for Israel, whereas Israel doesn't invoke it. In the okay. past, for all. For other previous escalations, uh, uh, Israel has always said that the primary basis is the ongoing armed conflict with Hamas, and in any case, there is also Article 51. So giving the idea that Article 51 is less important. In, the, in relation to the recent escalation, I've seen a document translated in English, so I don't have a, I don't take responsibility for the how accurate was the document, saying that uh, Article 51 doesn't take any role, uh, to be more precise, that it, it's not necessary for Israel to invoke Article 51 because there is an ongoing conflict with Hamas. 
Anyways, which is my legal position? My legal position is that occupying power can protect their own citizens under the law occupation. However, I don't think that use ad bellum is applicable to justify any military operations within occupied territory. Because, uh, as we said, use ad bellum governs the entirety of um, uh, uh, the beginning, sorry, of the use and force between states. So any other episode of use and force uh, within the occupied territory should be calculated in light of this for the assessment, sorry, of the original use of the balloon. So in the case of Israel, everything that is going on these days should be calculated in light of the original claim of Israel of self-defense at the beginning of the Six-Day War. But it's not relevant to it's it doesn't apply to justify the specific uh, military operations. As uh, very well known, this is a theory that puts together very different sources, including the International Court of Justice, that in the world opinion clarified that Israel cannot claim Article 51 because it never claimed that arm attacks. Uh, were originating from a state and because the armed attacks were originating from occupied territory. That I think is this second problem the most relevant here. But uh, uh, states have different views. Western states uh, keep invoking Article 51. That again, in my opinion, it's not relevant for the individual missions. Uh, I think that Israel has the right to use and force under different sources. What I would like to clarify is that um, I find, uh, uh, I try to analyze the law as it is. I find peculiar that these days, uh, most people who uh, try to deny the applicability of the right to self-defense to Israel, uh, want to do, do, to do so to support the Palestinian cause. Yeah, it's not always the case because saying that Israel does not have a right to self-defense under Article 51 because it doesn't apply to occupied territory means that Israel doesn't have to rely on the occurrence of an armed attack to use that force, and Israel doesn't have to react uh, according to the criteria of necessity and proportionality in the reaction because just that body of law doesn't apply. When I wrote the book. Uh, I follow the reasoning because I believe that uh, the limits of this right to use and force are in the law occupation, in the system created by Article 43 of the Graduations and Article 64, Paragraph 2 of the Convention. But it's far more difficult to build a legal uh, uh, constraint to the use and force on IHL rather than use of value. So... Uh, I think uh, this is the reason why we have a very different uh, uh, perspectives, both on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, of reaching the same conclusion, the inapplicability of Isabella. They uh, like this for different reasons. I think it's just our international developer. I think it's the right answer, legally speaking. But it's important to remember that it's a view that uh, it's open to abuse. Yeah, okay. So that's interesting because you're saying that it's um are you saying that the USAD Bellum is more limiting or less limiting than Article 43 plus Article 64 2? 
It's a difficult uh, question. I think that uh, use at Bellum in uh, self-defense uh, is, uh, even with all the debate, uh, the boundaries of use at Bellum are more clear than the boundaries of the law occupation as an uh, instrument to constrain the use of force by the occupying power. That was the aim of my book. Yeah. I wanted to demonstrate this, but it's more difficult and less accepted generally. On the other hand, and this is a question for scholars, and it doesn't pertain only to Palestine and Israel, my book and my expertise is in general under occupation. I don't claim yeah. any additional expertise. Is whether we, at this point, we should uh, apply the law that we think uh, uh, does apply as a matter of international law, or we should select the most convenient uh, uh, legal framework for our interest, the interest that can differ in relation to different in, in occupied territories. So I tried to reconstruct a system that uh, I think it can work. I think it's the system that better fit how the occupation developed, how it uh, uh, relates to other branches of international law. But uh, if uh, somebody tells me that this system has certain limits, I'm open to acknowledge them because, again, international law is a tool of powerful states, was yeah. created as a such, and it's not something inherently good. I think the world is better with international law than without, but we can acknowledge a certain point that in this thing, international law has certain uh, shortcomings. It's a yeah. human. Yeah, I, and it's been interesting seeing the blogosphere uh, recently talking about all of these issues. And I think. Um, it, it was interesting reading Ralph Wilde talk about how Israel doesn't have the right to self-defense and does that give it no recourse against non-state actors? Yes, which is unfortunate, but it happens because these circumstances are of Israel's own making. And um, Mark Milanovic also had an interesting point, which is that this is my reading, uh, my reading of, of one of the things that he said in his piece, which was that you... Israel would have the right to self-defense if the perhaps uh, this, this is my interpretation. Maybe he, he doesn't say this. If the Palestinian resistance was so strong that in the end it was Israel that had the right to self-defense. Does that make sense? If, if to understand that way. Uh, I am uh, quite uh, uh, I can say I'm comfortable in discussing the work uh, of COVID. Okay, fair enough. I know. <laughs> Personally, both Marco and Wilde. Uh, okay. I like the certain aspects of the post. Yeah. It's on others, but I don't think it is very elegant to. Uh, <laughs> uh, in this way, if you want to know what I think about this. Uh, um, Not the apart from the fact that it's in the book that was published before the recent escalation, yeah. but then there is in a blog uh, called Armed Groups in International Law, there is my first, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, there's a very brief assessment of uh, uh, the most recent escalation where I also discuss these points in the times that we have discussed so far. But I don't feel very comfortable in saying okay, that. <laughs> I thought this colleague was wrong. 
and uh, I prefer just the full hour. Okay, good. No, I get that entirely. So moving on to the classification of the conflict, I did want to ask because um, when I'm looking at the conflict in terms of classification, and when we were talking about it within within my within our style, we were looking at it as an occupation plus an IAC. So the law of occupation applies between Israel and the occupied peoples, and uh, the law of Nayak applies between Hamas and um, Israel. So you argue that the law of IAC applies. Um, how is that in in terms of looking at it from the different paradigms that you do, the conduct of facilities paradigm applying to Hamas, uh, but then the law of occupation and the law enforcement paradigm applying the rest everywhere else. How is that, uh, what is the difference between those two? I think that uh, you applied the Ayak power because you asked me about the prisoners of war status that only exist in Ayak. Yeah. So you, you were naturally uh, led. Kind. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this is the right, uh, the right, uh, as you said, the classification. I would just uh, try to explain this clearly. Conflict classification is based under international law according to the prevailing view uh, on the status of the belligerents. International conflicts are any use and force between states and states only. Non-international conflict are uh, uh, acts of violence that breach a certain threshold between an armed group and a state or between two and more others. So the status of the, of the belligerents rather than geographical considerations govern classification. This is the uh, mainstream view. I don't like it, but I don't uh, go in my book against the mainstream view. I, I don't like it simply because this is not what the Geneva Conventions uh, consider at the time, but in any case, the practice of it. What I uh, disregard, what I uh, disagree with, is the idea that this class, uh, classification, this uh, way to classify uh, armed conflict, is unaffected by the situation of occupation. So a situation of occupation can only be created and established when uh, there is an international conflict. In fact, the law of occupation is part of the law on international conflict. I don't think that uh, makes any legal sense to apply in occupied territory in relation to the same individuals, mm -hmm. the law on Ajax and the law on Nyax, depending okay. on what those individuals do. We're talking about the same individuals. We're not talking about two parallel conflicts with separate entities on the same territories, but literally to the same individuals. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is not, a, honestly, a minority views. Maybe you know, some, to these days, uh, some people are more vocal than in the past, including some colleagues you just mentioned, uh, in favor of the Nayak classification. I don't think at all this is the minority views. It's a view uh, supported by many colleagues, in particular, Dapwakande wrote very good things about this. And it's a view linked to the fact that the law occupation uh, absorbs and uh, 
replaces the normal rules on conflict classification. So you can agree uh, with this conclusion, irrespective of which are your idea on how conflicts are classified normally. And again, by the way, it is the view of Israel that applies uh, uh, IAC rules, there is a very clear case law of the Supreme Court of Israel. It's the same view of the Palestinians, and so, which is the sense to deny uh, the law applicable chosen by the belligerents? Also, thinking about the fact that the law on uh, international conflicts is more developed than the law on non-international yeah. conflicts. More protective, there was a clear trend towards unification and the Kasma international law. This is what... Uh, uh, the case law of the ICTY and the practice of this I- ICRC are trying to tell us, but still there are differences. And in my opinion, nobody considers uh, at international level, non international actor considers that is a, a non international conflict. This is also because there is this clear idea that Palestine is something different from Israel. And more in general, more correctly, there is under the occupation the duty to maintain separate the legal uh, identity of the occupied territory, the local population, from the legal identity of the occupied power to avoid an accession. Yeah. So I think that conflict classification should contribute to this. and. In the practice, they are treated as Arabs. Uh, just to be complete, uh, our audience could be aware of the fact that uh, in the first additional protocol, there is a provision saying that wars on national liberation, that is, uh, wars against European power, colonial domination, and uh, apartheid, should be considered Arabs. Now, I don't think this is the changing uh, factor in my analysis, yeah. because I think they are IAC because they occur in occupied territory and are uh, in the relationship between the occupying power and the local population. But uh, in any case, there was an attempt in 1977 with the first uh, protocol ban to uh, fill this gap. I At the time, there was... Uh, more confusion was some uh, there was doubts on whether the occupation applied to Palestine, Namibia, and Western Sahara because they were not traditional states at the moment of the occupation. So clearly, that provision was created to fill that gap. But I totally agree with those colleagues who already at the time said this is totally uh, irrelevant for occupations. It's good for uh, other wars or national liberations, but already. And conflicts with the local population or groups organized by the local population are addicts. So if I have to conclude just for, uh, this applies for military in every occupied territory. If I have to conclude just for the audience to be complete, can we have NIACs, non-international conflicts in occupied territory? Yes, in two scenarios. One I mentioned in my book, only one, that is uh, local population is divided into more armed groups having armed confrontations among them. It's probably something that happened in Palestine at a certain point. The relationship between Hamas and Fatah was particularly tense. There were lots of acts of violence and probably they reached the level of a non-international conflict. And then there is a second case that I didn't think about in the book. It came to my mind after. For the second edition, I will include it. That is whether some... Uh, uh, nationals of the occupying power 
takes arms, uh, take arms against the occupied power. Imagine if tomorrow, unfortunately, it's realistic, Israel orders all the settlers in uh, West Bank to withdraw into Israel territory. Imagine that the settlers try to resist this by taking arms against Israel. That would be a non-international conflict because it's between a state, yeah. its mm-hmm. own citizens. That of course occurs in occupied territory, but there is no link to the uh, duty to maintain a distinction between the occupying power and the local population occupied territory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you're saying that what was given in Common Article 2 about occupation being an IAC, Article 1-4 didn't do anything to change that? No, I think it's a, it, okay. it wasn't needed. It was so, already an IAC. Okay, so in terms of applying the conduct of facilities paradigm, so when Hamas acts, there civilians DPIHing? Again, sorry, I so when, oh, okay. When Hamas fights Israel in occupied Palestine, they are just civilians DPIHing? And this will go back to the question. I think that the IHL is not at, uh, updated to take into account these armed groups like Hamas or like other armed groups who fight in an IAC. But at the same time, they don't uh, uh, fulfill the conditions for legitimate combatants. If you think about this, uh, the additional protocol one uh, tried to enlarge the uh, yeah. definition of combatants exactly for the so-called guerrilla fighters to try to uh, recompress them. So I think that the answer uh, is that uh, probably they do not amount uh, as combatants, so they should be considered civilians. But on the other hand, I think that uh, CASMA international law moved towards uh, uh, considering this participation in more uh, broader terms, for instance, through the idea of a continuous uh, combat uh, function. I think it's just that, that is an area in which IHL lags behind. And it's interesting, uh, if we talk about the uh, resistance in occupied territory, that um, there's been a certain calls in, uh, in the US uh, to ratify additional protocol one uh, in uh, last summer, last spring or last summer, to better support the resistance against the Russian occupation in Ukraine. Because as you may know, one of the main reasons why the US are not part of the Protocol 1 is exactly the definition of combatants. Mm-hmm. But uh, to better support resistance against the occupation in Ukraine, uh, it was suggested that uh, the US should ratify the Protocol 1. Now I don't think anybody uh, will go back to that uh, proposal yeah. 7th of October. But it's interesting to understand to, it gives us an idea of how uh, in this IHL lags behind, and for sure the Geneva Conventions lag behind, and the Chapter 1 tried to uh, better clarify the situation. Okay, 
Yeah, um, that's very interesting about Article 1.4 and Common Article 2, because I, I hadn't looked at it that way. But but I still fail to see the difference between Occupation Plus NIAC and the Conduct of Facilities and other framework. Because if we're saying CCF is now customary IHL, then essentially NIAC law applies. Sorry, I think I missed your... Uh... Acronym. If we are saying that, ah, continuous combat function. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know because we are talking this moment about a mass uh, that mm. uh, violates the law of uh, war in IHL and so doesn't, cannot fulfill the criteria for uh, uh, prisoners of war. But there could be certain situations in occupied territory. Also, sorry again, that <laughs> it's okay. university has to save money for life. So <laughs> I was saying there could be certain situations uh, uh, in occupied territory in which organized armed groups mm-hmm. uh, do not belong to the state, but they fulfill the criteria uh, for prisoners of war. If we consider that NIAC applies, they will never be prisoners of war. Again, think about Ukrainian groups. Okay, okay. I get what you mean. I think that we should, in my my approach is, is, uh, maybe it's not the one uh, for which you invited me, but my approach is to try to find a a legal solution that applies in occupied territory, uh, irrespective of which occupied territory we are talking about. Then the specificities of uh, a certain... uh, situation can prevent us from applying the law. But I think IAC uh, and NIAC law are not the same. And there is a second uh, uh, level that we should take into account, that is uh, the, the consequences as a matter of international criminal law. Because uh, the uh, statute of the International Criminal Court maintains a strict separation between IAC and NIAC um. In sense of war crimes. Then, since we talk about international criminal law, it is interesting, I think, it is so necessary, I think, to be as specific as possible when we have, for instance, indictments. And so it's important to classify the correct legal framework as a NIAC or a NIAC. So far, we have very little about this because as conduct of hostilities, the prosecutor of the ACC has not uh, yet uh, said any word about about, uh, occupied territory. What I find interesting is that uh, in the boarding of the Mavi Marmara, the boat trying to force the maritime blockade of the Gaza Strip, when the Prosecutor dismissed the old prosecutor dismissed uh, an investigation for lack of sufficient gravity. The prosecutor said that as preliminary examination to understand whether there were reasonable basis to believe that war crimes had been committed, she would have applied war crimes pertaining to IAX to the hostilities occurred on board of the vessel. And she said this because it's a situation of occupation. So I think there is, uh, I might be wrong, but probably the new prosecutor was an active uh, investigation uh, on uh, the current escalation. I expect to use the same approach, honestly. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And I, I was really interested to read the section about how human rights law applies 
in tandem with IHL. And I was wondering what you made of the recent Israeli Supreme Court Yeshton decision of 2019, um, because I think that came out after after your book uh, yeah. regarding riots not occupied territory. And especially, I think it was Chief Justice Hyatt who argued that those directly participating in hostilities should be governed by the conduct of facilities paradigm. Um, and other participants in the demonstration, as well as rioters and instigators, should be dealt with under the law enforcement paradigm. This involves a simultaneous application of two fields, uh, two regimes of law to the same event, but to different people. How is this realistic in an I don't think it is realistic, just okay. to be very clear. What I think, uh, uh, I think we have to make uh, a distinction. One issue is. Uh, whether the, a belligerent is bound by its own human rights obligations in the conduct of hostilities. Irrespective of whether our state is in occupied territory or not, there is a case law saying that the IHL and international human rights law applies together. You, our audience might be aware of the fact that in 2021, the European Court of Human Rights adopted a terrible decision. And I say terrible because I wrote an, an article with a co-author uh, to try to demonstrate how bad was the decision, saying that in the faces of active hostilities between Russia and uh, Georgia that led to the occupation of Sakaias of Georgia, the European Convention of Human Rights didn't apply because of the chaos of the states. But anyway, irrespective of this isolated uh, contrary voice, uh, there is a certain debate, let's say, on the applicability of international human rights law to hostilities. Mm-hmm. And in any case, all of the recent uh, authorities, including that terrible case by the European Court, agree that if there is an occupation, the occupying power is bound by its own IHL obligations, sorry, international human rights law obligations that apply extraterritorially. That's one part of the question. Oh, yeah, there is a second question that is, when the occupying power uses armed force in occupied territory, which is the model of the use of armed force that should be applied because we have two models of the use of force, you alluded to them. One is law enforcement, that is traditionally governed by human rights law, but domestic human rights law, that should be informed uh, by clearly international rights law. And then a different set of rules is the one governing the conduct of hostilities, that is IHL, basically, plus, if any, international human rights law. The choice of the model in peacetime is determined by the level of violence that occurred in a specific situation. In the sense that if the armed confrontation reaches the threshold of a non-international conflict as defined by Common Article 3, the state can legitimate switch from law enforcement to conduct hostilities in a NIAC. That is what this is the definition of NIAC. But we need this pressure to be crossed to allow the state to switch from one to the other. Mm. The question is what, uh, which is the law in occupied territory? My idea is that uh, the law occupation explicitly uh, demands 
that the occupying power uses law and force. This is the content of Article 43 of the regulations that says that the occupying power must restore ensure public order and civil life as far as possible while maintaining the uh, except for uh, absolutely except if absolutely prevented the, the law in force of the operator. Then we have article uh, uh, 54 if I remember correctly on the table with the numbers of uh, the Fourth uh, Geneva Convention that says that the occupying power must maintain in function public officials and judges. Then we have mm -hmm. Article 64, Paragraph 2, that says that the occupying power, except in specific cases, should maintain in force the criminal law of the occupied territory. So which is the entire idea of the law occupation? The entire idea of the law occupation is that the occupying power must uh, take the role of the ousted sovereign and must uh, uh, use the same way uh, means available to the Austrian sovereign to restore and ensure public order. When the Austrian sovereign could have, uh, uh, which ways uh, the Austrian sovereign should have used and force, law enforcement. However, let's remember that Article 43 is uh, limited by the clause as far as possible and uh, except if absolutely prevented. Yeah. So my idea is, if the armed violence in the occupied territory reaches the level of a non-international conflict, the occupying power can use some force following the conduct of hostilities. But again, my construction, that is my construction, and I know it's very difficult to follow sometimes, it's based on the fact that I believe the occupation creates a legal fiction forcing the outside sovereign to act in occupied territory, sorry, forcing the occupying power to act in the occupied, the occupied territory as if it was the outside sovereign. So, coming to your question, which is the legal regime applicable in uh, any instance, in any incident? It depends, by, uh, it depends uh, on the level of violence. If the level of violence is that below the threshold of a non-international conflict, the paradigm that should be used is entirely law enforcement. That is, the occupying power should use and force following human rights law and domestic law. Mm -hmm. If that level of violence reaches the threshold of a non-international conflict, the paradigm moves back to the conduct of hostilities. And so the Ukraine power should use armed forces in, um, in compliance with IHL plus if applicable humanity. I don't think that the same situation can have both features. I don't think so. So it yeah. is important to uh, define as strictly as possible the specific situation in which uh, the in which a specific person is targeted. What I think again is that we cannot apply the normal rules of use and force in uh, uh, armed conflict to occupied territory because in the occupied territory there is a peculiarity. The occupied power, the occupying power, is burdened with an administration that should not. Uh, result in an accession, but at the same time should try to maintain a 
peaceful uh, governance of the occupied territory. So even if I'm an enemy soldier, enemy combatant with a uniform in occupied territory, if I'm not taking part at hostilities in a way that, uh, uh, you know, reaches the threshold of a NIAC, I think the, the law enforcement paradigm should apply. Okay. The combatant shouldn't be killed, should be captured under uh, uh, domestic law, human rights law, because again, is the law occupation that forces the occupying power to act in the shoes of the host sovereign. But using it, I understand the limits of my construction. For me, this is quite a, a narrow path for the occupying power. So I say we don't need to use that balloon and Article 51 justification because we have this construction that applies. On the other hand, I understand that my argument, that I think is quite good on the paper, can be manipulated by an occupying power that say no, 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 security reasons, no, no, terrorism. I do whatever I want, whenever I want. This is exactly what I try to, in the book to avoid. I try to reconstruct a legal framework that can constrain violence in occupied territory. But I understand that uh, it's uh, subject to cherry picking. On yeah. The yeah. Um, and just final question, because I know I've asked so many extra questions that we've gone so over time, but in terms of uh, the amount of questions left over in this area of the law of occupation and how it applies generally, how relevant do you think that the ICJ's upcoming advisory opinion will be on um, the occupation? And what questions are you most interested in seeing answered by the court? That's a very interesting point. I think that... Uh... First of all, we should remember that the forthcoming advisory opinion is on the legality of the occupation in its entirety. So if the, I don't know which is the outcome, but if the court uh, yeah. finds that the occupation is illegal, the court could order Israel to withdraw from occupied territory. Think about uh, what the court did in the Chagos opinion uh, that was about colonialism yeah. rather than occupation. But the court ordered the UK to leave the Chagos as soon as possible. And in fact, there are certain negotiations in place at the moment. So if that's the case, if the occupation ends, all these problems are totally irrelevant for the occupation because it will not apply to a territory that is no longer occupied. Unfortunately, I don't think that whichever is the position of the court, the occupation will end soon. Unfortunately, I think that ending the occupation will be a good way to guarantee freedom of Palestinians and to guarantee the safety of people in Israel. But that's my political. What I hope that the court will clarify is the overall legality of the occupation under the principles of use at the bellum self-defense, and under principles of determination. Because Israel claim, uh, claims that uh, the occupation of uh, Palestine uh, started in 1967 in an act of self-defense, and that maintaining the occupation is necessary and proportionate to that original act of self-defense. And here, in this calculation, all the military operations, including the last one, should be uh, assessed. Now, yeah. I would like to know by the ICJ if this is the case. 
Is this mm -hmm. occupation still necessary and proportionate in light of uh, the alleged armed attack suffered in 1967? Or maybe the court could also tell us whether there was an armed attack. Mm -hmm. Second point, uh, the court should see if uh, under current international law, with the huge emphasis on the principle of self-determination of peoples, any occupation is ever justified under yeah. the principle of yeah. self-determination. And you know, last year in an obiter dictum, the African Course on Humans and People's Rights said in relation to Western Saga that any occupation, irrespective of any consideration, is today illegal because it's a violation of the principles of the initiative. Oh, okay. If the ICJ reaches such a conclusion, that would be probably a turning point in general because there would be no possible justification of. Uh, any uh, occupation around the world, even in self-defense, even with the authorization of the UN Security Council. So I'm very curious to read the, the opinion of the court on this. Yeah. I honestly don't have any idea on how the court uh, will decide the case. I think there is at the moment a huge pressure because of the recent escalation of the court. Yeah. But we will see. We can meet again to discuss uh, the yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> Um, and so I know we've been talking for over, over an hour now. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for reading my book and for giving me the opportunity. Oh, <laughs> and bye thank bye. you to everyone who's watched us at home.